from the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast here at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca, and wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to talk rent evictions today. And you probably know the term. The landlord says, hey, I'm going to renovate this unit, kick whoever lives there out, and then all of a sudden the unit gets back on the market for twice the price that the person who was already there is paying. So what, if anything, can the City of London do about that? Let's talk with the Deputy Mayor, Sean Lewis, about that, who's been kind enough to join us in studio today to have this discussion. Sean, thank you for this. Uh, you're, of course, welcome, Craig. Always happy to join you. And, and this is a pretty important issue. And it's the first one Council's taken a bite out of to start the new year. So uh, happy to make the time to to have a bit of a discussion about this because it is complicated. Yes. Um, and th- it's multi-layered and the city does not have jurisdiction to fix everything. So I think it's really important to get as good of information out there as we can to, f- to folks about what the city can do. And, and that's one of my questions about ju- jurisdiction here. And obviously this is kind of playing in the in the province's sandbox. I want to talk about that. But we'll do that later. Just, just start with why it was important to do this now. Why was this the first thing you wanted to get at in 2024? Well, you know, this is going to take some time. Staff mm-hmm. are, are going to need to do an environmental scan of, of what other municipalities are doing uh, and come back to us a report with a report. A lot of what other municipalities have tried has only started in the last six months or so. So there's not a lot of data yet. They're going to need time and, and they're going to need to look at what's working and what's not working and come back to us with some recommendations. They also have to look at how that fits within our existing uh, rental residential unit licensing bylaw. Uh, so there's some complicated components. They're going to need some time. Council is going to spend a lot of time in the next few weeks focused on the budget. We thought this was the time to send our, our municipal enforcement and compliance staff off to and licensing staff off to, to go and look at what other cities are doing so that when the budget's done, they can come back to us uh, with some recommendations. And then hopefully we can have something in place this calendar year. And, and my goal would ideally be uh, to have something in place by September, because we all know in London, uh, one of the factors that influence tenancy and availability of rental units is the annual migration in and out of the city from the students. So uh, something that's in place before the students come back in the fall would be my ideal target so that we, we need this runway. So getting it on the agenda right now was an, an important start. And it's very much on the agenda, and it was unanimously approved at the committee level. I suspect, I'm not going to sit here and say it's going to be unanimously approved at council, because I have no idea, but it will in all likelihood be approved at council. So we're going to see what staff comes back with then. Yep, absolutely. I I don't think that there's anybody on council who's going to have an issue with where we landed at committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, obviously we had a a 6 nothing vote uh, at committee because the mayor was at committee. Uh, And then you had myself and Councillor Cuddy, uh, who had co-signed the motion, who are not on that committee to right. vote. So we have already eight got eight right votes. Yeah. So it, it's going to pass at council. It's just a matter of whether it's unanimous or not. Right. So I know that the Webster Street situation, which is in Councillor Cuddy's ward, was, was, was mentioned as part of this. And for folks who are not familiar with that, uh, a building there, a Toronto company, I believe, uh, takes hold of the building. And then they're saying they're going to do a bunch of renovations. There's questions about who's going to be able to come back. You have many very, very, very long-term tenants wondering about the stability of their housing. That's a stressful thing. So uh, clearly it's something worthy of the city's time and effort there. It is. And it it certainly was a trigger point that really uh, raised the attention of this issue on uh, everybody's uh, radar in the city, I think. Uh, But I think it's really important to note that 
a, a situation like Webster Street is a, a bit of a unique situation here in London. Now, it has happened in other municipalities, uh, and certainly in the GTA, it is a seems to be a more common occurrence. But in London, we see a lot of this happening, uh, particularly with the N12s, although it happens with the N13s too. And, mm-hmm. and I guess I should say, so an N12 eviction is when uh, a property owner notifies the tenant and says, you have to leave because one of my immediate family members or I myself are moving into the property. Uh, and then the N13 is we are doing some significant renovations. You can't live here while the renovations are happening. You have to leave during that period of time. So there is two sorts of eviction notices that, that we're really focusing on, and it's the N12 and the N13s. We see a lot of this, uh, certainly in the east end of the city, uh, happening more around uh, single-family homes that have been converted into residential dwellings than we do in apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it where uh, somebody has, the home has been sold and then the new owner says, you got to leave. Uh, whether that's for renovations or whether that's because a family member is moving in, they use one of those two reasons. But then we see the property posted on Facebook for twice the rent in, in like three or four weeks. Right. Um, obviously, the family member's not moving in. Obviously, you haven't done significant right. renovations in three or four weeks. Uh, so it w- it's a bad faith eviction. Um, and that's where the city actually does have some jurisdiction because we have a rental unit licensing bylaw. It doesn't apply to all units. It doesn't apply to purpose-built rentals. But what it does apply to is any converted dwelling that has become a rental unit. So if it was intended as a single family home uh, or what have you, and it's been converted into a rental facility, then it's licensed. And, and you can have a ton of those around Western and Fanshawe. We do. We, there's all kinds of those in the near campus neighborhoods. Uh, they're, they're certainly spreading uh, throughout the city as the housing shortage continues. So there are some ways that we can look at if a landlord has to file an N12 or an N13 with the city as part of their licensing agreement, then we have some follow-up tools. Then we're not depending on the tenant to report a complaint. We can say, okay, well, you have 60 days or 90 days or whatever the reasonable timeline Mm -hmm. is, and that'll come back in the staff report to file with us a a new, because we could include in this, when you get your rental unit license, not only do you have to do the building uh, checklist and the fire checklist, but you also have to file a copy of the lease with us. Then if you issue an N12 or an N13, you have X number of days to file a copy of the new lease with us. Mm -hmm. And if that's not done, or if we get a complaint that this property is now being advertised for rent at, at a new price, then we have some enforcement tools. Then we can say you've violated your rental unit licensing agreement we can start to look at what kind of financial penalties we can impose. Uh, obviously, I think that those need to be pretty significant. Um, if you're only imposing, you know, a $500 fine or a $700 fine. You can make that back in a month. That's, that's yep. less than a month's rent. Yep. That's that's not going to do it. But if we could start to impose, you know, a, and again, I'm spitballing. I don't know what the staff recommendation would be. But if we could impose a five or a $10,000 fine, suddenly you're sacrificing a quarter or two quarters of the rental income for the year. Uh, that becomes a disincentive to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, we could potentially even get to the point where uh, the landlord has found to have acted in bad faith and we uh, forfeit their rental unit license. They can no longer rent the property. Right. So then they're either going to have to sell it or they are going to have to occupy it. And if they're found to be renting it without a valid license, then we can impose even stiffer penalties. So there are ways, especially in these near campus neighborhoods where, where homes have been converted to residential rentals, uh, or even in, in other neighborhoods where rentals have become a bigger part of the market, 
we can start to really mm-hmm. put some disincentives in place yeah. uh, against these rent evictions. Can you, and maybe this is something the province can do and you can't, you tell me. If someone says, oh yeah, I'm doing some renovations at, at this property where I own and I'm going to have to kick the tenants out. Can you say, oh, that's interesting. Let me see the contractor work order, please. So that's something that we're going to explore. Right. Um, there, there's some challenges for us in that, you know, the, the initial thought was, well, could we require them to file for a building permit? But not all renovation work necessarily mm-hmm. requires a building permit, right? And I'll, I'll give an easy example. There's a plumbing leak, goes yeah. undetected for a while. The drywall gets gets ruined, black mold infestation starts. It gets discovered because of the mold. They rip the wall open, they fix the plumbing. Now they got to fix the drywall. But while you're mitigating mold, you, you can't always have somebody living there. Of course. So that would be a legitimate reason to issue an N13 and it would also be a situation where we wouldn't require a building permit. Because you're just rebuilding what was We're generally you're just, there. You're, yeah. you're generally replacing drywall right. and, and doing some mold mitigation measures, right? So uh, it's not sufficient enough for a building permit. But what we could do is per- potentially, uh, aside from requiring them to file a contractor license with us, we could also say before a tenant can move back in, you have to have another building inspection at your cost. Yeah. Not at the city's cost, at your cost. Um that would be another check in the process to say this has been legitimately renovated uh, and now a tenant can legitimately move back in. Um, we can't do things like ban rent evictions. Um, no, that's, because the, that's a provincial issue. It, it's not only is it a provincial issue, but landlords do have rights too. Of and, course. And there are times when legitimate work has to be done that do not mm-hmm. allow for a tenant to remain in their unit. So there are legitimate reasons why an M13 is issued. They're not all legitimate. We're, we're seeing a growing right. number of, of ones issued in bad faith, but there are legitimate reasons too. So we can't punish the good actors while we're trying to catch the bad actors in, in their, right. you know, unfairly price gouging and, and pushing tenants out of their homes and out of the market. And as far as parsing which of these is legitimate and which of these is not, the province is going to have more tools there than you're going to. Absolutely. And that's where the Residential Tenancies Act comes into mm-hmm. play. That's where the Landlord-Tenant Tribunal comes into play, um, where, where the province uh, has some changes to make. And they've made some. And, you know, I will give credit to MPP Rob Flack, uh, myself, Councillor Cuddy. Uh, I will say uh, Councillor Lehman has has had at least one discussion with MPP Flack and I as well. We, we talked about some of the challenges we're having in London around housing. Uh, this issue came up and, and he shared with us what they were doing in terms of staffing up the Landlord-Tenant Tribunal to speed up those tribunal hearings um, and, and even said, let me know how this goes. You know, if, if we need to make a change, you know, for some reason legally you can't require them to file an N12 or an N13 and we need to make a change provincially, let us know. We'll work with you on these kind of things. Um, you know, obviously they're, they're looking to see how this goes um, and it's hard for him to make any commitment right now. But even there, they're having some positive dialogue with us. They recognize that there's a problem too and that there's some steps that they have to take uh, and they are looking at what those steps could be. But of course, federal and provincial governments both move incredibly slow compared to municipal yes. government, which I know still doesn't move fast enough for people, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, we can move a little bit quicker. Uh, and so that's why I think it, at least as an interim step, it makes sense for us to be exploring what we can do around, particularly around these converted dwellings. Now we did... Um, also give staff some direction to start to consider whether the rental unit licensing uh, regime needs to be expanded uh, and maybe it needs to, because inc- right now it's it's really only encapsulating 
uh, spots where there's four units. Um, do we need to go beyond that? You know, we've changed recently the five bedroom uh, limit uh, on housing. Do we need to start looking at that? Do we even need to start looking at maybe some of these uh, what I would call older inventory buildings that are much more um, sort of the three-story walk-ups or the four floors, one in one in a basement, three above grade, um, which are often, you know, 20, 25, 30 years old now and are starting to get into some serious uh, deteriorations. And, and we see renovations happening there, but then we don't see improvements happening in, in the building and we continue to get property standards complaints and those kind of things. So also asking our municipal compliance folks to sort of identify are, are these low rises also a hot spot where, where we're getting mm-hmm. a lot of complaints and where we're seeing a lot of this happening. Uh, again, we're, we're kind of going on, you know, what we're hearing in the community, but it needs to be backed up by some solid data. So we've asked staff to consider whether or not we need to expand that as well. Um, obviously we want to be cautious. Right. We, the, in the last term of council, we had a councilor bring forward a motion to try and implement the rent safe program that Toronto has, which by the way, uh, you know, I'm not taking lessons from a municipality that's almost a billion dollars in debt and begging the senior levels of government for a bailout in terms of fiscal responsibility. Um, and, and they're certainly not charging the real cost of that program in Toronto. Um, but that was to license every building and have annual inspections every year. And, and staff told us, that's going to be north of $10 million every year on the property tax base. You know, and I don't think we can realistically uh, look at some of the, the cranes that are in the sky downtown right now, uh, or if we look at, you know, like the Azure building on Talbot, uh, or if we start thinking about the, the new buildings that York is developing at the Forks of the Thames, those buildings are not going to be a problem. They're brand new. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not going to have needs for for significant uh, renovations in those buildings anytime soon. So why would we be even trying to capture those good actors, those people who are maintaining their buildings and paying money to and paying and money? Up to, yeah, yeah, um, significant money. Um, and that's by the way the only the public sector cost. There's also the cost on the private sector side for their people to administer their licensing regime as Which well. One suspects we've passed along. And the Residential Tenancies Act allows them to pass along that cost to tenants. So that only raises rent further. So we've got to find where that, that cost-benefit analysis makes sense uh, so that we're not actually putting more people in precariously housed or even homeless situations because we've driven up rents even further, because we've driven up property taxes even further to the point where people who right now are are managing are no longer able to manage the homes that they actually own. And, and then they're pushed into the rental market or into a homelessness situation because they can't afford to maintain their property taxes anymore. So there's, there's a tricky balancing act here. Yeah. Yeah. And then I get that. I... I don't really have any concern from the perspective of, you know, what are these landlords going to do? Because I don't think, I think we're going to be, for the most part, targeting people who are doing negative things. And if and if you're not, you're, you're probably going to be fine. Uh, there's no problem about it. In fact, you will be. Uh, I, I'm just, my worry is, are we going to get enough of these? Are we going to spot enough of these problems? Because the housing market, the way it is, it's really, really tough out there, obviously. You know that. And when you add in the, okay, I've got a place to live and this is going good. And all of a sudden my landlord pulls the plug on it. That really throws a wrench in the works for a lot of people. So are we going to, how many of these are we going to be able to stop? I guess is my question. I know it won't be all of them, but are we going to be able to stop enough of them? And, and that's a very fair question. And the answer to that 
right now is I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, It depends on what sort of recommendations staff bring back to us, what tools they say we can operationally implement in a reasonable way, uh, what things just are are proving in other municipalities to not be effective tools uh, to implement. There's, There's a lot of questions around this. You know, it really is a situation where municipalities are, to some degree, responding because provincial governments have not. And it's that this is not a criticism of the Ontario government either, because it's happening in every province in this country. Uh, and we're seeing municipalities in British Columbia implement tools uh, just the same as we are here in Ontario. We see, you know, talk of this happening in Manitoba. Certainly there are some things happening in Quebec already. Uh, and it's municipalities who are sort of being the canary in the coal mine and testing some of these out uh, because there hasn't been significant steps made by provincial governments. Um, And the other component of this is as much as we're not going to catch them all and as much as we've got some advocacy groups and obviously, you know, there were representatives from ACORN in in the gallery yesterday when we passed this motion at committee, but there was also, uh, you know, advocacy meetings that they've had with us. And I said in my own comments, I met with them in November, they really they raised the N1213 as an area where they really thought we could do something. I agreed. So that's part of what led to this. Uh, but there's another piece of advocacy that needs to be happening here uh, from those tenant advocacy groups. And and I would argue from the province as well, which is educating tenants on what their existing rights are. Right. Because you do have a right to re- return to your unit after the renov- renovation has been complete. You do have a right. The landlord can't just triple the rent. Like there are yeah. restrictions and on And it's hard for the city to spot these unless someone says, "Hey, here's what's yeah. going on." And there exactly. And there will always be and I know that this is one of the criticisms we get all the time, but we cannot proactively inspect and enforce and follow up on the over 50,000 units of rental accommodations that there are in this city. There will always be a component of complaint-based reporting from tenants. And that needs to happen. Because even if, let's just say you did rent safe and money wasn't an object. If someone was getting their rent tripled, rent safe's not going to necessarily turn that up. No. Unless not. unless you say to whoever is coming to your place, hey, my rent has tripled. But you could just as easily call City Hall and say the very same thing. You know what I mean? So even if, even if money wasn't an object here, there's still going to be some things that the city misses unless people say to the city, to the province, whoever, this is what's going on. Absolutely. Uh, that is a, uh, a challenge and, and the reporting is always going to be required. And and we also have advocacy or I shouldn't say advocacy. We also have um, services like legal aid. We have services uh, here in London like neighborhood legal services uh, where tenants can get legal and financial assistance to challenge some of these renovations too. Uh, a lot of tenants don't know that. They don't know that they have the right to return to their unit after the renovation has been complete. So there is a component here as well of making tenants more aware of their rights in these situations because they don't have to leave necessarily because they've gotten an N13. They can challenge that. They can appeal it if they don't believe that the unit actually needs that kind of work. Um, They do have the right to return. There are some rent controls still in place in older buildings and, and the amount that the rent can change is still regulated. So... There are some protections that are already in the Provincial Residential Tenancies Act, and people just don't know how to access them. Yeah, 
and, and I guess that's part of the education aspect of this. And a little bit of that, of that it's on the city as well. As far as like just letting people know what's around and resources and things along those lines. Well, I would say yeah. that a lot of that is on our local MPPs. There's that too. It's provincial legislation. Yep. Um, you know, most of us, I think, all get uh, periodic newsletters from our MPPs in our mailboxes. I get them from two ridings because I live right on the because border. Because you live on a border. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I send one out to my ward constituents uh, annually. Um, now, my budget is much smaller than an MPP's. So mine is a, a an annual mail out. I'm trying to get it to the point where I can do it twice, but uh, I get notifications from my MPP in my mailbox two or three times a year at least, uh, as well as my MP. And, and I appreciate that information, but use that opportunity to get educational information out to people. Uh, you know, mine just arrived in mailboxes this week, and I'll tell you, a section of mine was devoted to... Um, because it's January, uh, here's what to expect with snow plowing. And here's where you call when you've got a complaint about snow plowing, because that's a municipal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And so proactively saying to people, you know, don't call my office on a Sunday afternoon. Like, here's how you report it to Service London so that snow plowing happens. The same thing needs to happen from our provincial representatives. They need to get information out uh, to tenants uh, in terms of what their provincial rights are. Uh, I think that there's an educational component that comes back to our local elected representatives as well. Yeah, I I, I think that's definitely the case because I, I, I don't like seeing people getting kicked out of their homes for, you know, really any purpose, obviously. But again, like you said, sometimes there's legitimate ones. But when we look at the homelessness issue in the city, uh, how many of those can be traced back to something like this? How many people who are currently homeless can, can it be traced back to something like this is what's kind of started them down that particular path, right? Yeah, and it may not have made them immediately homeless. Yeah, but you, it, you it may have been the or whatever. Yeah, exactly. you're right. It may have been the start of that mm-hmm. path. Yeah, you go and stay with family for a little while, but you can't stay there forever. Uh, you, you couch surf with a friend, but again, uh, circumstances change. People can't accommodate an extra person in their home all the time uh, for an indefinite period of time. So that becomes that first step towards that homelessness situation. And so we do need to look at these. Um, and, and again, we've got to strike that balance. If you think about the N12s, if somebody buys a home uh, because the conditions are right for them to buy that second home and they know that their their son or daughter is going to be attending university here in London in a couple of years. So they do a, a lease with a tenant in the short term and they say, but this is only going to be good yeah. until 2025 because then my, my kid gets the home. That's a reasonable expectation to say to the tenant in 2025, you have to vacate because right. I told you at the beginning, this was happening. I'm, you know, my child is now 18 and I, this is going to be their they're home. They're in a moving. Western and yeah, yeah. or Fanshawe, whatever it is. Um, so property owners, the landlords do have to have their rights protected as well. Ultimately, they do own the property. So it is striking the balance between the the ownership rights that a person has with the tenant protections that, that come with, I mean, let's face it, a lease is basically a rental contract. It's, it's yeah. a legal contract. It's for the occupation of a space to, to reside in. Um, but every contract has to have protections in it, whether in any sort of business contract. Of you know, it doesn't matter. There's always those That's why the contract exists. That's exactly. In fact, I would even say that's why we license businesses because there are certain conditions we need businesses to meet uh, in terms of operating in our city. Um, so there's always conditions in contracts. And it's it's about finding out when these landlords take out a contract with the city in terms of their rental license, are there things we can do with that 
that extend protections to tenants from bad faith actors in, in this area. And, and I think there are. Um, and I think that where we landed at committee and, and where this will go through at council will help to start to address some of those because I do think there are some tools at our disposal uh, that we can use to toughen our licensing bylaw and mm-hmm. extend some protections to tenants until we see you know better progress made at the provincial level to address some of these challenges in a, in a wider scope. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you as well about... And, and I use this example just because it's a, it's an obvious one, but there are many places like this. Uh, remember that fire that we had at uh, at Fanshawe a little while ago, or not at Fanshawe, but like yeah, up in the here on Highbury yeah, area, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, it was uh, it turns out it was a, a, a former single family home that had been converted quite sloppily, and all this. I think there were twelve students living there, some absurd number like that. And these are people who, quite frankly, were being taken advantage of by an unscrupulous landlord. I don't think there's any way around that. And of course, there were some fire code violations in there too. What can the city do about those? I, I know that there are already some bylaw violations that are at a place like that, but is that another one of those ones where it's like, well, we need to see some reporting here? Like, because th- th- those ones aren't even licensed. So even if there were, if you had all the inspectors in the world, you don't even know who's in that home. So you, it's hard to get to that. Exactly. And, and that is a very real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to take the opportunity to say to all the Ward 2 residents who, who have been eyes and ears for me, thank you, uh, because I've encouraged neighbors to say report if you see this if this is a concern mm. absolutely let me know and then we can forward that to bylaw and to fire yeah uh and then appropriate steps can be taken in fact uh, i had one on friday that i have forwarded to bylaw enforcement and to the fire department right. uh to do a follow-up and investigation people are going to say don't on... snitch on your neighbors and yeah you can snitch on your neighbors if you're violating the fire code i think that one's okay absolutely if someone if, if someone's you know watering their lawn too much okay but fire code violations let's talk about those yeah yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, realistically, I, I I don't want people getting to the point where they're saying, you know, oh, my neighbor put their garbage out at 4 p.m. No. and the bylaw says they can't put it out until after 7 p.m. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's really getting into uh, levels of ridiculousness, frankly. Right. But, the fire, but co- the, fire, the fire code, that's a different yeah. conversation. And often these places are having other negative impacts in the neighborhood already. Um, you don't have enough parking. And so all of a sudden on-street parking is happening everywhere and people's driveways are getting blocked and garbage isn't being maintained properly because these places were not meant to house 10 or 12 people and there's not proper garbage storage. And so you start attracting you know, the rats and the raccoons and the skunks and neighbors start complaining about the, the vermin that are in their backyard because of their neighbor's garbage. There are negative impacts. This isn't about snitching on your neighbor. There are negative impacts to your property to having an underground, unlicensed rental unit operating yep. next door. And so I wouldn't call it snitching on your neighbor. I'd call it protecting the value of your own property by reporting what you believe to be an unlicensed rental unit. Um, we will inspect. We will show up and, and knock on their door and be looking at what's going on there. And I will also say we take a a compassionate approach. If it turns out that there is a, a rental unit there that's not licensed, uh, we're not going to force the people to leave that day. We're going to reach out to the property owner. We're going to say you didn't, you don't have a rental unit license. You're required to have one. Here's the process. You can be in process 
and we can let those people stay while you're going through the process. But you're going to have an inspection for fire code stuff. Uh, we need to make sure there's proper fire egress windows. Capacity is going to be looked at, uh, although we cannot limit the number of people who live in a home in terms of one person per bedroom. There is in our bylaws a maximum people per square footage of habitable space. So there is a, a little bit of an overcrowding tool that we can use. I'm not sure that that's strong enough, but it's, again, it's something else to look at. But you're protecting the value of your own property when you report these because they often have negative consequences to the surrounding properties. Um, we need that to be proactive reporting. There's no other way around it. Yeah. So I guess the message is, if you are listening to us right now and you see something that's going on that uh, seems dangerous, let somebody know. Absolutely. Because it could save somebody's life at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah, it's, it's true. And uh, it's very fortunate that no one died in that fire that we were referencing in the, the highway in Huron uh, area earlier. And I, I wish that we were not in a situation where to a lesser extent, universities, but right now mostly colleges, we're letting in so many people beyond what they are structured for from a residence perspective that we were in the spot where you can basically do whatever you want in some of those areas and people will be willing to rent a room for me, from you. That's part of the problem here, but uh, it, we are in that situation. It absolutely is. Yeah. And the federal government needs to step up right. and cap the number of international student visas it, is, it issues every year. And it has to tie that to its housing commitments. Right. We cannot just continue to absorb, you know, a city the size of London every year uh, right. into the country. We don't have the housing for these folks. And it's really disingenuous to tell them they're welcome to come here and then they have no place to live. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't blame the students who are coming here. They're coming here to Canada. They want to make a better life, life for themselves, whatever it is. Great. I wish we had the housing for you. We don't. And that's the issue. So we've got to do some catching up on building before we continue to see those numbers uh, be as high as they've been. Absolutely. We, we have to catch up on that. Uh, there's a role for the province to play here too. The province actually regulates post-secondary institutions. Yep. They can cap how many international students a college is allowed to have. They can tie that to, or a university, they could tie that to the number of residences uh, that the post-secondary institution has on campus uh, and, and require a percentage of those to be available to house those international yep. students. There are ways to do this where we can still welcome international students to come and study here to make a better life without it just being the wild, wild west. Because that wild, wild west is also impacting our housing supply significantly. And I've seen it certainly in Ward 2. I know Councillor Cuddy has seen it in Ward 3, where people who have been renters of homes, single family homes, a family renting yeah. a home, gets an eviction notice because a family member is going to move in. And then you know, whatever time frame later, it suddenly got 12 students living in it and they're paying, you know, a thousand bucks each to even live there. Yeah. Um, and so they, it's, it's just been a cash grab move. Um, and, but there's been no way for us to do anything about that. And this rental unit licensing bylaw review and some of the tools we're put, investigating here could give us a way to start to do something about that. The problem is that leaves those students with nowhere to go. Yeah, and they're already here is the thing. So I, I don't like the idea of kicking someone out of their house and saying you're heading back to wherever it is you came from. That's not fair either. The issue is treating these people fairly, treating these folks fairly as they come into Canada and say to them, listen, here, we've got this spot for you or, or we've got, you know, there, there's th this number of rental units in the city that you're going to be studying in. And we can't do that right now. So 
th this is the, the the problem we're dealing with, and I don't want this to come off as me blaming the students for this. It's not their fault. They're not the ones adjusting immigration policy. They're no. not the ones adjusting policy for, for post-secondary institutions. Those are, those are government officials who I blame for this. Absolutely. This is a, a failure of the federal government in particular. Uh, it is a failure to a lesser degree, but there is still a component of responsibility here at the provincial government level. Uh, and and even to the post-secondary education institutions oh, themselves. Yeah. Build it's an residences. Yeah. It's yeah, you're taking their money. Mm -hmm. By the way, the tuition isn't regulated the way it is no, for domestic that's students. That's why they're happy to so take So they're somebody. happy to take yep. their money to come and study here, but they're not providing well, I would argue they're not providing the necessities of life yeah. for those students to while they're here as students. And if you look at the numbers, like, you know, the, the colleges are way, way, way ahead of the universities on this as far as uh, sheer numbers and things along those lines. So uh, I, the universities, it's not like a crazy number compared to where it's been in the past. And they have uh, obviously significantly more uh, housing stock on campus and things along those lines. The colleges, though, like Conestoga, Fanshawe, that, it's, it's, it's unethical. Yeah, uh, when you're uh, into no, five-digit yeah. uh, yeah. international student enrollments, yeah, it's an unethical way to run your institution, and and, and Fanshawe and Conestoga and others deserve some heat for that. Yeah, they yeah. they do, and, and I know we've raised this uh, with uh, Peter Devlin at Fanshawe College. Uh, Councillor Cuddy and I uh, have met with him as well. Uh, obviously, our our two wards, uh, so Fanshawe is in Ward Three, but both of our wards are impacted by student housing needs. Um, the other thing that we have to do from a municipal perspective, and and this is not just around the college, it's it's in every neighborhood. Obviously, the, the housing issue is not just student-driven. There's a lot of other factors involved too, but we have got to clear the red tape. We've got to get through, and I know we've talked about this before, but uh, we've got to get applications through the planning process and the building permit process and let people build. Uh, you know, there was a that high-rise at Fanshawe, across the road from Fanshawe College, I'm sure you'll remember, uh, and they were going up to, I think it was 22 stories, and, and the college objected. Yeah. Because it was going to block, uh, essentially block their view. Um, that's not a reason to reject you, an apartment building. Yeah, you now, have to live with that. There were some other there were some components. There was, yeah. 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 And actually, the, the housing accelerator funding dollars that we've gotten from the federal government, uh, which I will thank them for as much as I'm criticizing them on the yeah. international student visas, uh, I will say that by helping with the housing accelerator fund, we can start to address some of those infrastructure uh, blockages yeah. and, and start to open up land for more intense housing development. Obviously, that corner at uh, Highbury and Oxford uh, around Fanshawe College Ooh. is just ripe and perfect it, for it high density student residential yep. development. Uh, all the basics are right there. You know, we approved an application uh, for the uh, mall across the street to build a residential uh, tower where their parking garage is right now. Um, so, so the city also has to play a role in getting housing and particularly purpose-built rental uh, applications through as quickly as possible so that shovels can get in the ground. Uh, we can't get hung up on the, you know, uh, what I'm going to call the minutia of things. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know that it's desirable to have things like uh, bird-friendly uh, design in your windows and, you know, EV charging stations and that. And that's going to be on the planning agenda mm -hmm. today uh, where we can look at asking for some of those things in site plan. But we're asking for them. We're not at a point where we can start requiring them because what's more important than anything right now is getting shovels in the right. ground. Um, 
the student housing is a component of that. Not that we shouldn't be looking at these things because we should. And, and I obviously I co-signed that letter with Councillor Frank too. Um, but there's there's going to be some trade-offs to speed yeah. versus, you know, the nice to haves in the longer term uh, or even the need to haves in the longer yeah. term because we do need to move towards more environmentally friendly housing. But first thing we got to do is get people off the streets and into housing and get people out of 12 people crammed into a three bedroom home and into proper housing for them. Yeah. Uh, and, and that just, it, it's, it's a dangerous situation. And it's, I think I, I dread because we're waiting for something to bat for, we're waiting for something bad to happen with something like that. As far as one of these houses that, you know, there's two bedrooms and all of a sudden there's 12 people living in there. Oh, we, we a little more space in the basement, a little more space here, a little more space there. We're waiting for something bad to happen with that. And that's, that's, that's my concern. And, and that's why we're taking this seriously. That's why we're bringing this forward now. Yep. Uh, you know, I see it in Ward 2. There's homes on Railton. There's homes on Wayvale. Uh, there are homes on Trafalgar. There are homes on Marconi. There are homes all over Ward 2 that have been converted into rentals. Single family homes that are now housing, uh, you know, four, five, six students that used to house, you know, a couple of adults and a couple of kids. Um, some of them are even more intense. And, and we've got to follow up on those situations as quickly as possible. Uh, but we also need the, we need the public to report them. You know, I, I say this about snowplows, but it's, it, it's relevant to this issue too, in that we've got over 4,000 kilometers of road in this city. Yeah. There's residential housing, I would say, probably along the vast majority of those 4,000 kilometers. We can't possibly have eyes and, and ears on every road in the city every day of the year from a municipal compliance standpoint. We need residents to identify those problem areas so that we can respond there rather than spending a lot of time driving up and down where there's no problems. We need to focus on where the problems are. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's uh, that's a good spot to leave it, focus on, on where the problems are. So we'll see what staff comes back with and and go from there. Anything else that you want to add, Sean, before we wrap up the, the conversation here? Uh, well, I mean, I think the, the only thing that I'm disappointed in is that this is only the second most important news of the week because <laughs> obviously uh, both being Leaf fans, uh, we're both excited by the, the Willie Nylander uh, contract extension and keeping him there. You should ask um, him to help <laughs> with some of these bylaw inspectors pay their salary. He's got, he's got the cash he, now. <laughs> he, yeah, maybe we should look at him as being an investor in the city. Um, I, I think that the really important message that I, I want to add to folks is that, you know, this is part Mm-hmm. of the housing crisis we're facing. Yeah. Um, it's part of the homelessness crisis we're facing. It's it's one part. And I, I said this in committee yesterday, and I, I meant it, and, and I want to say it again. You know, it's the old adage of how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. This is one bite from the housing crisis, but it is not the only thing council is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, we still have the hubs program moving forward. We are still talking to the province about getting an addictions uh, a treatment facility in this city sooner than later. We are still, uh, you know, there are shovels in the ground, constructions happening at the old South Street Hospital. You know, there are s- almost 700 units of housing coming online there. We have other uh, developers and other projects that are looking at hundreds and hundreds of units that are being added. The planning committee uh, today is, is going to be looking at about 200 units for approval. Um, there are lots of things that we are doing, and there are some really, really positive signs for our city. The fact that the private sector is ha- has 200 
units on the application uh, docket today speaks to the confidence that they have. The fact that we've got a developer who wants to build a 53 and a 43 story tower at the Forks of the Thames speaks to the confidence that investors have in our community. So there's a lot of ups. Yes, we've got some challenges, but we are making progress on these files. Um, the problem is th that the issue is so big and it's so complex and the solutions are small pieces here and there that it may not seem like it. You know, it's that tr trying to turn the Queen Mary on a dime sort of thing. You're not going to see the results today. You're not going to see the results next week. But will we be in a better place in a year? Yeah. Will we be in a better place two years from now? Absolutely. Because we're making these incremental changes. And that's really where we can make an impact as a municipal government. We're not going to fix this problem independent of the province and the feds. Right. We can't. It's impossible. We, we, we have neither the financial resources nor the legal jurisdiction to do so. But there are things we can do municipally that will improve the situation. And we are doing every one of those things that we can. And we're trying to do it within a reasonable budget. Um, you know, budget talks are going to be the next focus for the while, a while. Yep. Um, property taxes have to go up because municipalities are not immune to inflation. We're not immune to high interest rates. We're not immune to those things any more than you or I are as homeowners ourselves. No. Um, but... Like if you think it costs you to more to, to gas up at the pump, uh, it's not the exact same type of fuel, but do you think it costs London police officers and London firefighters more to fuel up those, those vehicles? London transit buses. Yep. Um, Again, not, snow the same, plows, yeah, um, not the same type of fuel, but the, it applies. But the cost yeah. is still going up on yep. all of these things. Um, to the cost to keep the lights on at our community centers and our pools and our arenas and those places, that cost is going up. Um, you know, the cost for materials to repair our roads, that's all going up. Um, none of these are things that the municipality can get around. But at the same time, we also have to make investments in the, the really key area of housing and our planning and our building divisions so that we can get those applications through, so we can get shovels in the ground, so we can build places for people to live. Because another way to disincentivize a, a, a bad faith N12 or an N13, get inventory on the market so yeah. that they can't jack the rate up because nobody's going to pay that rate. Right. Because there's, they can go someplace else. Yeah. Because there are other units available for rent. And if we fix the inventory problem, we're going to take a big bite of these uh, out of these false N12s and N13 evictions too. So that's another piece of the puzzle in solving this problem. Yeah. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there. It is a complicated puzzle. Sean, thank you so much for coming and doing this. My pleasure, Craig. That's uh, Sean Lewis, the Deputy Mayor of the City of London, joining us here on the Craig Needles Podcast, which you can find at classicrock981.com, londonnewstoday.ca, and wherever you get your podcasts. The Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.